This podcast is made possible by Workday and U.S. Bank. Hello, this is Robert Bendetti, Chief Financial Officer of Lifecycle Engineering, and you are listening to the CFO Thought Leader Podcast. Episode 347. reduction in force, and I was eligible for their retirement program. I, you know, to tell you the truth, I was burnt out. I thought, you know, my career's over. The uh, All the people, supervisors here are younger than I am. Um, and so I, you know, marched off into the sunset, so to speak, and then got an opportunity. And as uh, my wife Sharon often says, very few people get a second chance at a career. Uh, and I was very fortunate to be one of those. And... Uh, From Middle Market Media, this is CFO Thought Leader, where we speak to finance leaders about driving change within their organizations. I'm Jack Sweeney. On today's show, we speak to Roy Austin, CFO Emeritus for DJ Powers Company of Savannah, Georgia. For nearly 30 years, Roy Austin worked as a senior accountant for the Eastman Chemical Company of Kingsport, Tennessee. However, his career aspirations had become nullified. He thought he was burned out. One day, a door swings open and Roy realizes He was never burned out, only bored. Within the next 24 months, Roy finds his footing on a personal development path that finally leads him to the CFO office. Roy shares his story after these words from our sponsor. Just as a house needs a good foundation, your business needs a solid technology foundation. At Workday, a different approach to finance technology is giving growing mid-size organizations a distinct advantage. Workday's flexible architecture means that when business conditions change, finance can easily make changes to business processes. To learn more about how a finance system from Workday supports mid-size organizations from the ground up, visit us at Workday.com. Workday, built for the future. CFO, who is also a trainer, speaker, coach, and author. In fact, you recently published a book titled The Alligator Business Solution, Small Business Competitive Advantage. As our listeners know, we will occasionally feature a CFO emeritus, and uh, Roy is just that. He was a CFO at DJ Powers Company from 2002. The 2009, he was CFO there. Now, that's one of Georgia's uh, first freight forwarders and uh, custom brokerage firms. It's one of the fastest-growing uh, logistics company in that state today. Uh, so before we go any further, Roy, welcome. Thank you, Jack. appreciate you having me. Well, we've been looking forward to this, Roy. You have a, a career that intersects many uh, interesting companies 
and uh, leads to the CFO office. It's not a direct line, however, and it's uh, your ability to reflect on lessons learned along that path is why I knew you'd be uh, great for this podcast, and uh, we're most appreciative. Let me uh, begin by just asking, what were those career experiences that helped prepare you and led you to the CFO office? Well, that's a good question, Jack. And uh, uh, I became an accountant by accident. My my uh, education, the MBA, was in marketing, and that's where I thought my path was going to go. Um, so went out of the army. I took a job with Eastman Chemical in Kingsport, Tennessee, and uh, they assigned me to their uh, market research group, uh, which I thoroughly enjoyed. And I was there for a number of years. Um, and at the end of it, I was working on a project with President Carter's price controls. Um, when price controls ended, I didn't have anything to do. So they transferred me to accounting, which, interestingly enough, was exactly where I told them in my uh, evaluation I didn't want to go. Uh, I had taken accounting in college, didn't much care for it. Uh, although it did help me learn how to organize my personal finances. And so here I was in accounting. And at first it was going on sort of like sales reporting more. It wasn't very detailed. But after three years, I was in cost accounting. I didn't have a clue what I was doing. Uh, and I began to, to realize they, they planned to leave me here. All the accountants they're hiring are got CPAs, and they had big eight CPA firm experience. And I'm thinking, I am... I am not competitive here. So if there's ever a problem, I'm going to be at the top of the list to be let go. So I went back to school. And a lot of my friends said, well, you know, Roy, it's going to take you until you're 40 years old to get your, you know, all your accounting courses. And I said, well, I plan to be 40 anyway. So uh, why not? Um, and when I went back could apply what I was learning, I found out I loved it. But also, I enjoyed it because this was the mid-'80s. Computers were just coming into existence. And um, we had a few of them scattered around this department. And it was, gave you the opportunity to analyze the information and figure out what was causing performance, not just plug numbers in the slot. And that was what I didn't like when I was in college. It was just too routine, no, no challenge. So then I found out, well, I really enjoy this stuff. So I went on, I got the CPA, I got the CPA. CMA, um, and uh, worked, uh, you know, with, in, in Eastman until 2000, or until 1999, and they had a reduction in force, and uh, so I took their, their uh, buyout package um, and found a job in uh, Savannah, Georgia, with a small manufacturing company as their controller. Uh, which was a most interesting experience, fascinating company, bought by uh, uh, a fellow uh, who had inherited a lot of money but knew nothing about manufacturing aseptic drink products. And he actually bought a number of small companies uh, with his inheritance, and uh, he just ran them all into the ground. Um, and over the course of uh, about five and a half years, he blew $30 million, which is a... Hard for me to imagine that anybody could do that. But um, 
But I, it was obvious after two years uh, at this company at Savannah Manufacturing that it wasn't going to survive, so I started looking around, and I found DJ Powers, which was the most wonderful fit that I could have ever found. Uh, the owners were fantastic. They were great listeners. We were able to accomplish a lot of neat things, uh, and I became their CFO. So my, my path into accounting and CFO is a little unconventional, uh, but I think one of the things that really helped me was the marketing background that I had uh, in college and my first few years at Eastman. Uh, because as you know, Jack, a lot of times uh, companies have these silos, and usually accounting is one silo, and then there's operations, and there's sales and marketing. And a lot of times they, they don't work well together. Uh, but having the marketing background, I was able to uh, – uh, and I, I think that was my proudest accomplishment at DJ Powers, was getting all the different business functions working together. Uh, you know, when I get there, they're all complaining about what the operations people are doing, and I was able to explain to them why they needed to do it that way. And on the other side, I was able to help the operations uh, people understand why accounting had to do things they were, and we were able to develop much more of a, a team atmosphere. So I thoroughly enjoyed my uh, my time at DJ Powers and probably would still be there, except that my wife had some health issues. Uh, she went through 18 months, couldn't keep any food in her. Uh, we couldn't, nobody could figure out why. So I retired so we could go wherever we needed to go for somebody to figure out how to help her. And uh, within a week of my retiring from DJ Powers, she cured herself. Takes a lot of blood pressure medications. And uh, first, her blood pressure wasn't affected, and it started creeping up after a couple of weeks, and she took one pill and started throwing up. Uh, I like to tell that story because it's a good example of how medicines can cause problems as much as they can help you. So that left me retired, which I don't do. Uh, there's only so much tennis my body can stand. So uh, I started uh, doing business coaching, and... Uh, it kind of evolved from there and then ultimately wrote the, the Alligator Business Solution because I saw all these small businesses making the same mistakes over and over again. Uh, but uh, they needed help, and they had this do-it-yourself mentality. Uh, so uh, I thought, well, maybe they'll, I can help them through having a, a book that's essentially a user's manual. And I got a review the other day that I thought was interesting because I've, I've had several people comment this, that the book is not only good for small businesses, it's good for organizations of any size. Um, and it's also uh, kind of gets a little bit into how you manage your own life and uh, your other affairs other than just your business affairs. So it's been kind of a fun journey, and uh, I'm excited to be where I am. Wow. Uh, you, there's there's so many aspects of your career I'd love to uh, just circle back with you on. And one item I thought was interesting as well is you mentioned uh, how you went back to uh, school in the 80s, but uh, you actually got an MBA in the late 1960s, which uh, I think at that time that, that uh, the MBA is not as popular as, as maybe today. What led you to do that? Oh, that's a long time ago, Jack. <laughs> 
I don't know. I actually went to Michigan State with two other fraternity brothers, and we all went to the same school and all got the same uh, MBA there. We had different career paths. Um, but it just it seemed like the logical extension. And, and here's the, something kind of funny when you look back on it. Um, in, uh, in my senior year in college, uh, I had an aunt that passed away, and I inherited $5,000. Well, I used the $5,000 to buy a two-year-old Mustang convertible and pay for graduate school uh, and had no debt. <laughs> <laughs> Times have changed. Now you got your priorities right, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I, I have to ask now, too. Um, you had nearly a 30-year career at Eastman. Right. Um, and you were a senior accountant. I'm sure there are lots of opportunities and you're building your career. At the same time, within, you know, 10 years of leaving, you're a, you're a finance leader of a, you know, impressive firm. Um, what kept you there? I mean, did the call of leadership get satisfied while you were there? Did you feel it ever since that perhaps there are other opportunities you should have been pursuing? Well, you know, you, you're very perceptive, Jack. Uh, one of the lessons that I took a long time for me to realize was that hard work isn't enough. I mean, I had this uh, when I joined Eastman, which is a great company. I'm not taking anything away from them. Um, but I had this naive idea that if I worked hard and did a great job, somebody would notice me and promote me. Um, and that, of course, is important. You have to do that. Um, but if I'm looking at the resume of two people and one, and they both have the same credentials, the same experience, the same work ethic, and I know one of them and I know what their personality is and how they would fit into my department, which one am I going to hire? Um, it's pretty obvious, and I did not understand the, the importance of building relationships with people. Uh, and so I just kind of kept my head down and, and worked hard, uh, but I did not really reach, you know, my goals in a career. And when they had the, uh, the reduction in force and I was eligible for their retirement program, I, you know, to tell you the truth, I was burnt out. I thought, you know, my career is over, the, uh, all the people – supervisors here are younger than I am, um, and so I, you know, marched off into the sunset, so to speak, and then got an opportunity to go to Savannah, and as uh, my wife Sharon often says, very few people get a second chance at a career, uh, and I was very fortunate to be one of those, and uh, I loved every minute of it, uh, and what I liked most about working for a smaller company than a large company was the fact that as a controller or CFO, you get involved in everything. Um, at Eastman, you work three or four years in one desk or assignment and then get transferred to another one. So over 29 years, you've got a lot of experience. But uh, that took 29 years. And I always felt like in one year at Savannah Manufacturing, I got more experience than I did in 29 years at Eastman. Uh, that's not Eastman's fault. That was my fault. It was my fault for not... Uh, understanding how to build a career in a large company. And I made some mistakes along the way and, and it made a couple of people mad being a little bit outspoken at times. Um, and that didn't, 
that didn't help either. So, but you know, you learn from your mistakes. Uh, hopefully, uh, if you don't, then that's an even bigger problem. You also do something very interesting, of course, when you you land in Savannah. Again, you were at Eastman for quite a, a long time. I, I imagine you didn't have to move around much. And here yeah. you pick yourself up and you, you move to Savannah. And one of the things you do is you create this uh, CFO council for Savannah. Here you were this sort of traditional company uh, fellow inside an institution for so many years and perhaps didn't understand networking or didn't, didn't pursue it the way you should have. You weren't going to make the same mistake twice, it seems to me, uh, as you land in Savannah and you create create this council. At least that's uh, I'm wondering. What would you what would you share with us about your thinking behind that? Well, when I became the, the CFO for DJ Powers in 2002, uh, it it kind of hit me that you, the CFO in a smaller company, and DJ Powers was probably 100 million dollars, so it's certainly not a huge company if you count all their subsidiaries. Uh, but it was, you know, enough that uh, if you don't know what to do with something, you give it to the CFO. Uh, so you become responsible for all kinds of things. And you are familiar with all those things, but if you're real honest, your core expertise is probably only in 25 or 30 percent of the things you're responsible for. Um, so, so what do you do? Well, you, you know, you take classes, you go to seminars, you read books, you do everything that you can to try to get up to speed on these other areas, but it it kept gnawing at me that it would be really valuable to get together with some other CFOs in other companies who have different experience and different educational backgrounds and, uh, you know, have breakfast once a month and, you know, kick ideas around. Nothing confidential, of course, but, uh, you know, share things that, uh, that, that maybe uh, only CFOs have to deal with. And so, uh, but I was, you know, relatively new to Savannah. I didn't know many people here. Uh, and I was at a uh, uh, reception in Savannah one evening, and I was telling somebody about this idea, and standing behind me was Toby Moreau, who at the time was the city president for uh, BB&T. And Toby said, well, I'll, I'll sponsor your first breakfast. I said, okay, well, maybe somebody will show up if, if it's a free breakfast. <laughs> so uh, I sent emails to all the people I knew, which wasn't a whole lot, <clears throat> and invited them. Uh, you know, we collected some goodie bags to try to entice people to show up. Um, and about three weeks before the, the kickoff meeting in February of 2004, I was having uh, lunch with a fellow named David Harper, who I'd been uh, put in touch with. Um, and he kind of helped me flesh out my thinking on how the council should work. And uh, David's an incredible guy, and uh, what is so good about him, and I, I keep trying to emulate this, but it's a, it's a work in process, he is an expert at the Socratic method. He never gives you advice. He's, he's a business consultant, but he never gives you advice. He just asks you questions and helps you formulate your thinking and kind of pulls the information out of you. Uh, so we were having lunch, and he said, now, Roy, don't be disappointed if you only get about 10 people to show up. And I said, David, I will be ecstatic if 10 people show up. Um, that, would, that would more than exceed my expectations. Well, as it turned out, we had 41 people at the first meeting. Um, 
I was totally blown away. And back then we didn't have speakers. We just did a roundtable discussion on a topic of interest, and each table would discuss it and then share with the group what they'd come up with. Uh, and it just kind of took off from there. I didn't start it as a networking organization, but it turned into that. I didn't start it to create a uh, uh, scholarship fund for accounting students, but that eventually evolved. Uh, I didn't create it to start a job bank where uh, member, uh, members of the council could uh, post um, resumes of the, if they were looking for a job or uh, look, uh, post job descriptions of if they had a job to fill. All kinds of serendipities evolved out of that that I had no idea. I just was looking for some people to kind of <laughs> share experiences with. Uh, and uh, so I, I chaired it for 10 years. Uh, one of your previous guests, Robert Bendetti, was a member in Savannah. And eventually he wound up in Charleston. And uh, he contacted me a couple of years ago and said, uh, I'd like to start one up here. Uh, which he did, uh, and uh, that he's done a fabulous job. I've had several people say they want to start a council in other areas, and I'm always will, willing to help them do that. But when Robert called me, I knew he was serious. When Robert says he's going to do something, he does it. Um, great, great guy. And, uh, and so uh, the, the good part of that was they do things a little bit different than we do. So we've learned a lot from them. And so that's been a real good experience, too. Uh, we've had uh, in our council since 2002, um, there's no dues, and the breakfast is paid for by a corporate sponsor, and we meet 12 months a year every month. So every month we have a sponsor, and every month uh, we have uh, some speakers of interest. and. Yeah, there's been a couple of not so good ones over the years, but by and large, uh, all the speakers have been excellent. So it's been kind of a, uh, it evolved into many things that I certainly didn't expect when I started. Let me let me ask this. Um, again, while you were uh, within the, the accounting ranks of a, a large company, there was Probably you had peers or other leaders, uh, you know, uh, multiple leaders uh, to bounce things off of. You become uh, a CFO of a $100 million company. Suddenly you're somewhat isolated. You're, you're the finance, top finance right. person in this company. Um, I, I, again, I, I'm, I'm curious to, to know, did you find it isolating and did the CFO council uh, serve you? Uh, by bringing other senior finance executives uh, into your orbit? Well, certainly bringing the other finance professionals in and uh, uh, was, you know, very helpful. Um, and we defined uh, council members, not just CFOs, but what we called senior financial executives. So if you're involved in the financial decision-making of the firm, you're a senior financial executive, even if, you're just the sole proprietor. Um, but I didn't really find uh, – I didn't. I never felt isolated, DJ Powers, as you, as you said. I, I felt almost liberated. I had a chance to do some things that I had always aspired to do um, and just didn't know how to get into that position. Um, but once I got there, um, it, it – uh, I'm having a little – trouble with trying to figure out how to express this, but um, 
it, it was exciting. Uh, you know, it was a constant learning experience. If you've ever been around the logistics uh, industry, they have an acronym for everything. And even after seven years, you know, I'm in meetings and they were coming up with all these things. What does that stand for? Uh, there was always something new to learn, and that's, I guess, uh, one of the things I've always enjoyed is learning new things. And, uh, you know, uh, and eventually I kind of evolved from that naive, very shy young man into somebody who just loves meeting people. And uh, I've, I've had a, uh, a lot of fun with all the networking thing between the CFO Council and uh, BNI, Business Network International, that I'm involved with. So, uh, um, no, I never really felt isolated there. Uh, I'd be interested in learning more about uh, DJ Power's company and uh, some of its history. And um, as a $100 million company, uh, I imagine it's privately owned, it was privately held. It had two owners, uh, and um, <clears throat> the two owners uh, had been since the mid-'80s. Uh, DJ Powers, I think, is about 80 years old, maybe a little bit uh, older. Uh, it was originally founded by a fellow named Dennis Powers, uh, and then it was uh, bought out by uh, uh, Ernest Carter when Dennis uh, retired. Uh, Ernest brought his son Dick in. And eventually they made a fellow named Bill Conaway a partner. And then Ernest and his wife tragically died in 1985 in a fire in their home. Uh, so Dick took over the firm, uh, <clears throat> Dick and Bill, uh, in around 1985. And, uh, and, of course, I got there in 2002. So it's, uh, it's a, you know, as you say, it's privately held kind of a family thing. At the same time, I'm struck by the, this idea that there were so many firsts for you as you took on this role, including um, the relationships you'd form with uh, other C-suite executives and, um, you know, the CEO uh, relationship. That was entirely new uh, for you as a, as, a, as a, you know, you were now the finance leader. Well, the great thing about Dick Carter, and, and sadly he passed away in 2011, uh, but he uh, he was a wonderful listener, uh, and you could say almost anything to him as long as you said it nicely, which was is you know not the case a lot of times in uh, large corporations. Uh, there's a lot of situations where um, if you tell somebody the truth, you know even though they ask you what do you think. <laughs> That's not what they want to hear. <laughs> they want to hear, oh, yes, that's a great idea. Um, but Dick was different. And uh, and the second part of that, Dick was an engineer. And I've worked with a lot of engineers at Eastman, so I knew how they thought. And my brother's an engineer. Uh, so uh, engineers are incredibly analytical. Um, and so you're not going to convince them with logic or, or with you know, persuasive-type arguments. You've got to just put the information in front of them, let them think on it a while, uh, and then they'll come back with the answer. I'll give you a couple examples. My, my, my mother was visiting my brother in California. Uh, she was out there about a month. She came home. She said, I think there's something wrong with your brother. And I said, what do you mean, Mom? He's, she said, well, 
he spent three weeks analyzing uh, tea kettles to, to heat water for tea or coffee. Uh, and he was testing metal uh, heat conductivity and all these statistics. And I said, Mom, just relax. That's just the way engineers are. Uh, and uh, uh, Dick was the same way. Um, so once you understood that, you know, you'd lay things out in front of him. And uh, on one, one occasion, he came uh, he came into my office one day. I'd been there about a year and a half. And he said, Roy, he said, you're right. And I said, Dick, right about what? And he said, it's really hard to get fired at DJ Powers. Well, that was a comment I'd made to him six months ago. He'd been thinking about that for six months. Uh, but if you understand how engineers think and operate, then you can get a lot done. And uh, as our import director, uh, Gil Donaldson, said to me one time, he said, you've been able to get him to do things that, that I've been recommending to him for years. Uh, and uh, I said, well, you know, you just put the facts in front of an engineer. Let them, let them ruminate on it. Is there a segue here? Is there a bigger lesson for finance leaders today as well? I think so, and I, I think in particularly for smaller privately held companies, you know, they, they will, they're terrified of sharing their financial information with their employees uh, for a couple of reasons. Number one, they're afraid that the competitors will find out, and number two, they're afraid if things are not going well, the employees will leave. Uh, well, the fear that their competitors will get the information, I think, is, is really not a, a, a relevant argument. You can look at uh, all kinds of companies that have gone bankrupt that were publicly traded companies and all their financial information was out there. I mean, take Southwest Airlines, you know, profitable for over 40 years. While every other airline has gone through bankruptcies and mergers and on all kinds of turmoil, Southwest financial information was all publicly available. So why, why didn't that give the other airlines a competitive advantage? Um, it didn't. So having your information out there, I don't, and you know, other than possibly your pricing information, but really your customers can and competitors can find out what your prices are too. Uh, the other side of that is, you know, the fear that uh, if your employees will leave or if you're doing well, they'll want more money. Um, well, look at it this way. Uh, your weakest employees will never leave. Your stars can leave any time. So uh, if they know things are going poorly, uh, those weak people aren't going to leave. And, and the only good thing about a recession is it forces particularly smaller companies to prune the tree, so to speak. Uh, and, you know, they they tend to let people get away with things because it's more of a family atmosphere. They know uh, Billy Sue or, or Bob or whoever, and they know their family and they know their situation. So well, I can't let them go, you know, they've got a sick child or whatever it is. But yet that employee is poisoning the whole organization with poor work habits, poor attitudes. Um, and so when you get into a recession, sometimes you have no choice but to let somebody go. Um, but having your financial information out there is can be used as a way to motivate people. Um, 
everybody wants to be part of a, a winning team. And, you know, there's a couple of great books out there, Jack Stack's The, the Great Game of Business, and I'm reading right now Extreme Ownership, which uh, one of your former guests, Robert Bendetti, recommended. Awesome book. In fact, the chapter I was reading last night, he talked about going into a company that had a bonus system that was so complex nobody understood it, so it, it wasn't motivating anybody to do anything. Uh, and when they simplified it and explained to people how it worked so they could see how they could adjust their performance so that they could get a bigger bonus while productivity soared. So uh, I, I don't know if that exactly answers your question, Jack, but... Uh, it seems like finance leaders are becoming more imaginative in terms of how to empower the workforce and um, gain the confidence of different uh, parts of the enterprise as they look to broaden their, mm -hmm. their leadership. So what do I share with them? What, what uh, metric, what uh, piece of information uh, would help empower them and at the same time uh, sort of empower the company? Well, it, it's interesting, Jack, because if you give people a goal or a target, they will hit it, whether it's in the best interest of the company or not. So you got to be very careful how you craft, you know, your incentives to make sure that the it's not just incenting a particular department or division or whatever. It's, it's part of the overall strategy of the organization. How does the whole organization benefit, um, not just how does this little department over here, uh, we can produce more widgets, but now the department down the, the line is overwhelmed and, and can't process them fast enough, kind of the uh, Eli Goldratt, the goal uh, throughput accounting concept. Thought Leader listeners, we ask Roy Austin to share a finance strategic moment, his aha moment, after these words from our sponsor. You want smart, clear, and honest guidance to help you meet the financial goals of your middle market business. With U.S. Bank, you have a partner who will help you find the right solutions to help your organization reduce payment costs, enhance control, improve cash flow, and expand your spend visibility. U.S. Bank's dedication to making ethical decisions and doing the right thing is at the heart of what they do, and their efforts haven't gone unnoticed. They've been named a 2017 World's Most Ethical Company for the third consecutive year by the Ethisphere Institute. To learn more, visit uspayment.com slash middle market. Roy, one of our uh, signature questions is when we ask for a finance strategic moment or a aha moment, which is a moment of... Uh, strategic clarity perhaps that you have experienced during the course of your career um, what comes to mind for you you know i've heard you ask that of some of your other guests and so i've been thinking about that so i'm not sure i have a single uh, answer one of the things that uh, uh, came to mind was back uh, you know i would say in the early 90s it finally dawned on me that in my career at Eastman, that hard work isn't enough. 
but by then, you know, your career is essentially solidified. You know, the uh, image people have of you is not going to change. Uh, and, you know, I'd made some, like I say, some mistakes. And I, I think that's an important concept. You know, too often we, we hear people, they'll blame their boss, they'll blame their circumstances, their wife, their lack of this or that or the other. Um, they'll blame their circumstances for their uh, inability to reach the goals that they had when they were young. Uh, I think at some point you've got to accept the responsibility that you are the key to your own success. Um, that, you know, if it's not working out, it's nobody's fault but your own. Sure, bad things happen to people, uh, but we all know enough stories of people that have risen above horrific circumstances to lead successful lives. So, uh, you know, the past is the past. You can't change it. There's no point in dwelling on it. So the question is, what are you going to do with what's left to you? Uh, who knows how many days <clears throat> we've got on Earth, but uh, let's use them to, to the most benefit. If, you, if you're not in your career where you want to be, all right, let's take a reassessment. Uh, and the important part, I think, of, of learning to admit your own mistakes and take responsibility from them, for them is that if you don't do that, you can't learn. Uh, if you think that you're right all the time, um, then what do you do? You know, you were right and the whole world was wrong. Um, but no, uh, if I had a, uh, an insight when I was uh, writing a book, I was having lunch with a friend of mine named Robert Elsner and I was telling him something I was putting in the book and he said, Roy said, I don't agree with you. And I kind of sat back, you know, got a little defensive and said, what do you mean, Robert? And he went, I can't even remember what the point was, but he went on to explain his reasoning. And I thought about it and what he forced me to do by disagreeing with me was he forced me to think. If, when people disagree, you, you really want to find people that disagree with you because the ones that agree with you, you learn nothing from. Um, but if they disagree with you, if, if it doesn't force you to think, and, and in my case, it, it, I reevaluated what I was doing. I didn't change exactly what I was going to do, but I modified how I was going to present it and, you know, Robert and I then talked about it. He said, now that makes sense. So uh, uh, I guess the, the aha moment, the, if you will, has uh, really, when I finally began to realize how important relationships were with people, it's not something that you do to try to gain things. It's just because you enjoy people and you enjoy helping them out. Um, and uh, when those things started to click, uh, rather late in my career, shall we say, uh, then, uh, you, you know, you go on from there. Uh, I see a lot of bitter people in the world who, um, you know, I went through a divorce in 1993, and the people that have the hardest time recovering are the ones that say it was all the other person's fault. Um, well, I guess that's possible, but it certainly wasn't in my case, and I'm sure in most cases there's you know, more than one person uh, made some mistakes. Um, well, if you can't admit that you made a mistake, you can't learn anything. And if you can't learn anything, then you can't grow as a person and you can't move on into the future. 
We enjoyed uh, speaking with Roy Austin so much. Our interview ran an additional 30 minutes, which we planned to feature as part two in our next episode of CFO Thought Leader. Here's a preview of some of what we discussed with Roy. I never felt lonely in the CFO job because there was something new going on every day that it was exciting to try to figure out how to handle the problems. And some of the assignments they gave me were kind of different for uh, your CFO. They would they had the branch offices all around the southeast, and they would send me around to develop business plans for each office. In going around and trying to help them and help, in some cases, they asked me to mediate disputes between like the import and the export manager in an office. Um, it was a very different kind of a role, so there was something new and interesting going on all the time. Thank you for listening, and don't forget, Thought Leader listeners, you can now go premium at cfothoughtleader.com.